Hello, and welcome back to SIGGRAPH Spotlight. Today, we're highlighting a lesser known, or at least less often discussed, subject in the world of filmmaking, age manipulation in VFX. Prepare your ears for a fascinating deep dive led by SIGGRAPH 2020 Production Sessions Chair Derek Now, as he's joined by Digital Domain's Darren Hendler, Lola VFX's Trent Claus, ILM's Pablo Hellman, and Framestore's Chris Lawrence. The group discusses everything from well-known projects like Martin Scorsese's The Irishman and manipulating Brad Pitt in The Curious Case of Benjamin Button to the subtle beauty work techniques that go into just about any VFX project you could think of. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe for future episodes or leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts to help others find us. Take it away, Derek. Hi, everyone. I am so excited to welcome each of you to the podcast today for a discussion that I think is going to be incredibly fascinating. My name is Derek Now, and I am the chair of production sessions at SIGGRAPH 2020. And we've gathered each of our guests here because they are experts on age manipulation, beauty work, and put simply, shaping humans on screen. And before I dive into the questions, I'd like to kick things off by allowing each of you an opportunity to share an introduction, some of your background, and how you ended up where you are for the SIGGRAPH Spotlight listeners. And I will begin with Chris. Hi, everybody. I'm Chris Lawrence. I guess I'm kind of a, a relatively young visual effects supervisor. I was brought up in the 80s to films like Labyrinth and The Dark Crystal, to hippie parents who wouldn't let me watch Star Wars. Sorry to any ILMers who I'm on, on the phone with. I'm a failed animator at heart. I kind of, when I was a kid, I definitely uh, aspired to that. And I realized at some point that that was a, sort of required a depth of, of talent in a certain direction in, in terms of acting that I probably didn't have. But luckily, I was able to kind of pursue my dreams in, in another way by doing visual effects. And I think that's kind of worked out okay for me. So I uh, studied engineering and went, I joined, I've worked for about almost 20 years at, at Framestore. I spent a short time at Pixar, where I was on the character team for Wally. -E. And I guess my sort of notable career achievements have been Gravity, where we, we had to do a lot of both digital face work and also kind of trying to get around doing digital face work for various reasons. And I've additionally done some sort of relatively recent beauty work with Lola on Christopher Robin, which was the last film I was on production side. And yeah, currently working on a project I don't think I can talk very much about, but it's probably quite relevant for the current situation because we're doing some digital faces for some talent who had travel restrictions so they couldn't go to a location. So we're, we're doing some sort of, it's a contemporary problem, let's put it that way. Yeah, no doubt. Pablo. Hi, my name is Pablo Hellman, visual effects supervisor at ILM. I've been there for, wow, 24 years. My hair was brown when I started. I come from a, you know, to visual effects from a completely, like kind of a weird background because I have a degree in music composition from UCLA and I have a master's in education, which has nothing to do with what we're doing. But uh, a long time ago, about 30 years ago, I uh, landed a job as an editor at the station in Los Angeles. So I was an editor for seven years and started working on Star Trek Next Generation. And then it was a time in Los Angeles when everything was changing from optical to digital. And I got right, kind of right in the middle of that. 
And uh, I always loved computers and optical, you know, photography and all this other stuff. So everything like, kind of came together. And then I worked on uh, Apollo 13 and Independence Day. Uh, I was one of the supervisors there. And then I ended up at ILM. And there I have worked on all kinds of projects. Uh, and I kind of have seen how uh, manipulation of aging, you know, has come along in a procedural way. started with having a reference to see what, what it is that we're aiming at and then migrating into some kind of a tracking system where procedurally we tell the computer to see this pixel, track this pixel, you know, just you know, follow it. But started with the body and then it migrated to the face. And now, you know, we are kind of pushing the markerless kind of procedural way of interpreting a performance. So we're excited. That's very cool. Can I hear from Trent next? Hi, everybody. My name is Trent Claus. I'm a VFX supervisor for Lola Visual Effects. Uh, I've been with Lola now for 13 years. And I've, in that time, I've worked on over 120 feature films. So we have a heavy, heavy workload there. Doing everything from full CG environments to digital makeup effects and everything in between. But what I'm primarily known for is what we're all here to talk about today, which is age manipulation and beauty work. My Best-known work, I guess, is uh, with the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I've worked on 20 out of the 23 films that they've done. That's all of the aging and de-aging for the most part. So it's um, young Michael Douglas and Ant-Man and old Captain America and Endgame and everybody else in between. When I started with Lola, they were primarily known for beauty work. And that's what the majority of the work I did in the beginning was. And then we kind of migrated away from that. It's still something that gets kind of added into our scope of work on projects, but it's been many years since I've worked on a beauty-only show. Usually it's much more, you know, something much more involved. When I started, I, I had, my background is in fine art. So I have a studio art degree, drawing, painting, sculpture, that sort of thing. And I come from parents that are both art majors. And my mom was an art teacher for 40 years, you know, so I come from an art background and I rebelled for a while and, and tried to go into engineering. I, I spent several years in engineering and in college and then gave it up, threw it all away and gave in and went to art. And here I am. Awesome. And can we round it out with Darren? Hi, everybody. My name is Darren Hendler. I work at Digital Domain. I've been at Digital Domain for about 20 years, which is getting to be quite an embarrassingly long amount of time. I'm currently the director of our digital human group. And our digital human group is a research division dedicated to developing new technologies to create digital humans, digital creatures. We do this for feature films, real-time virtual production. We also do a whole lot of work in the sort of realm of uh, neural rendering and the technologies encompassed by some of the deep fake technologies as well. I've worked on many feature films from the Fast and Furious franchise through to Beauty and the Beast, Maleficent. Most recently, I was a supervisor on Avengers Infinity War and Endgame. I was responsible for creating Thanos and creating a lot of the technologies around how we were transforming Josh Brolin into Thanos and the other actors into their other creatures and characters. My background originally is in engineering. When I found my first computer in 3D package, I stopped attending classes and stayed at home the whole time just to work on it myself. And I think this whole thing is this exploration of digital humans really began when I was involved in a commercial where we had to create a set of digital human eyes that looked photo real. And just this act of being able to digitally recreate something that was human, something that looked so real, 
I was sold from then on out. So anything to do with creating digital humans or technologies around capturing people to have them play different characters, creatures, all the things I'm fascinated by. Great. I think I can safely say that the experts are in. So I'll go ahead and begin with an introductory question. And we talked a little bit about this before we began recording, but I'm pretty new to the uh, idea of beauty work and age manipulation. So we did some research here. And so according to Wikipedia, (laughs) de-aging in film is a technique used to make an actor look younger, especially for flashback scenes. That is often accomplished by digital editing the image or using CGI overlays and touch-ups. So you guys are the for real experts, and I'm wondering if you can chime in on that and and maybe say what you think about that definition, what it's missing, that kind of thing. I think like with any visual effect, there's a thousand different ways to accomplish it. So limiting age manipulation to just those techniques is kind of small in scope. It, It can be done many different ways, but for the most part, it's just trying to portray a character at an age other than what the actor can physically you know, <laughs> uh, do. We're stretching the age range of, of actors and actresses to accommodate the character in the story. I agree. And I think one of the things that is missing from that description is where the performance is coming from. Because I think that's really important, uh, especially when we're trying to portray somebody that is an iconic figure to portray behavior likeness of that person. That behavior needs to come from somewhere. I know that depending on the project, there are kind of like different ways of getting at that performance, either through keyframe animation or capturing the performance of the original actor and then manipulating it somehow, or you know, coming up with something like completely artificial or artificially intelligent, which is, I think, is probably the way we're all going towards we're trying to just to get the procedural way of capturing that performance together with some kind of an AI or deep fake or some kind of imaging that comes from the world, you know, the internet world, or some kind of gathering of data and include it into that behavioral likeness. I mean, yeah. <laughs> so we also wanted to ask about beauty work. And for that, the specifics are a lot more difficult, murky, is kind of hard to find. There's not a lot of information on the internet about it. So probably you're familiar with this Vulture article from 2016 in which writer Logan Hill coined the process (laughs) plastic surgery with a mouse click. I'm curious if, you know, maybe Chris or Darren want to chime in on this and give your thoughts about beauty work, how it relates to age manipulation, how different are they, etc. Good question. Hard question. I mean, The tricky thing is that all of these things are so tied together. You know, what is age? What is beauty? Is a wrinkle in age? Is it part of beauty and things as well? Um, It also gets very sensitive too because you're sort of modifying somebody's performance. Generally for all this kind of work, we're generally very, very careful about this. We want to make sure we stay as true to the actor as possible, right? So we really want to, whenever we do sort of beauty work or beautification work, we want to sort of try and find a version of the actor that we're sort of aiming towards, right? So it's the actor from this specific film or this specific look, trying to keep it very much within their own realm and not transforming them to be something else. And also to what Pablo said, the the key thing to all of this is the performance, making sure that nothing we're doing in this is actually modifying or transforming their performance at all. And so we've done a variety of different forms of this as well, but it is something that's a little sensitive and we try and take very sensitively not to modify them in any way, not to change them into anybody else, but 
looking at a version of them, hopefully with the actor's input. And this has often been the case where they're a part of this process too. And that for us is also where it's the most successful, that the actors are part of this, where we're aiming for a certain look at a certain time and they're involved in this and it's not us taking them or modifying or manipulating their image into a way they don't like. I'm just going to go kind of riff on here with a follow-up question about that. Working in a different part of the industry, I've experienced where you make some small modification and then you make another one and you make another one. And this, it sounds like the actor's performance and their likeness is so critical. I'm curious about how you maintain your, your focus on what you should be looking for. How do you know when it's right? What's the finish line here for this kind of work? Because I can imagine you can kind of lose your mind a little bit. Uh, <laughs> Chris, why don't you uh, take a stab at that? Sure. Well, well, I think there's a very fine line. And I think that in an ideal world, you would have the actor have an input into that because they'll have an intent and they'll be very sensitive. Their image is their brand and they need to protect that. And, and you want to absolutely respect that. I've never had a, a negative experience where their input has sent things in the wrong direction or, as you say, you get this kind of accumulation of notes which makes it feel feel bad. I mean, it's much as though they were editing their own face for real with, you know, with makeup or prosthetics or surgery even. So you have to be just as sensitive as you would in that environment. I agree with all of that. And I think every project is different. And so I would say as long as it tells a story, you know, what you're doing tells a story that director and, the, you know, all the filmmakers want, you know, want to tell, then I think you're done. But on the other hand, we all know because we work in visual effects that we kind of abandon the work, right? We never, we never really finish it. We just keep going and going and going until the producer says, hey, you know, you're out of time. It's like, really? But yeah, you never really stop working. And then I find that I can watch a movie. I can turn myself off. I'm just watch a movie, what, you know, watch your work. But also always second guess myself. I wish I could have done this. Or I wish I could have done that. But we all are trained to do exactly that, go for the best. Yeah? And just to add to that, if I may, just, you know, we talk about we're taking the actor and we're taking their brand and we're modifying it. And there's often a lot of press about this process in a negative way, this manipulation of the actor. But I think, I'm curious to everybody else, but in all of my experiences with all the actors we've worked with, you know, we've never really had a, a bad experience with an actor through this whole process. For us, all of this stuff that we're doing, this technology, these tools, this process, it's a tool for an actor. It's a tool to have an actor's performance come through in a different form, a different version of themselves, an older version of themselves, a younger version of themselves. And we talk to the actors about this being a tool for them, right? We're just trying to keep their performance. We're just trying to help them appear different as if they were wearing a different makeup or a different prosthetic. It's just a digital version of this. And so even through all of this, we're very sensitive through this process. There's a lot of discussion about the negative sides of it, but we really haven't seen that. And most of, at least my interactions with actors on this side have always been very, very positive. Agreed. We, we've uh, always had great experiences with the actors and actresses, knock on wood, hopefully it continues. Kind of famously now, Michael Douglas, after he saw the first Ant-Man, joked that he wanted to buy the company so that he could extend the length of his career by another couple decades. <laughs> That's great. That's great. So I'm going to move on to, we've kind of done a little uh, you know, background introductory information here, and I want to move on to a question sort of about the evolution of the technology. So Age manipulation technology, I think, is credited as first being used in the 2006 movie X-Men The Last Stand. I'm not sure if that's accurate, but I'll go with it. I'd like to talk a little bit more about how the technology has evolved since then. 
A commonly mentioned industry milestone is the curious case of Benjamin Button, of course, and that's in 2008. And then we're all the way to last year's The Irishman. I'd like to hear a discussion about some of the key technological advancements and highlights along the way. And Trent, if I'm not mistaken, you worked on Benjamin Button, so maybe you can start this off. I did. I was a lead age manipulation artist on Benjamin Button. We had a tremendous amount of work on that show. It was, for those that don't know the story, um, Benjamin starts as an old man and ages to a baby essentially at the end of the film. So we have to make him look old at the beginning and young at the end. And we have to make everyone else in the film look young in the beginning and old at the end. So they're inverse of one another. And DD did the aging work of Benjamin at the beginning when he's at the oldest. And then roughly a third or somewhere in there of the way through the movie, Lola took over for Benjamin. And then Lola handled the supporting cast throughout. It was, uh, for Lola, a huge, exciting new project to work on because we, we had been toying with aging and de-aging on a, on a few films before that. But most of the work that Lola had done up to that point had been traditional beauty work, which is covered by non-disclosure agreements. So you're not allowed to talk about it. You're not allowed to use it in your reels or you know do press releases or anything like that. And here was Benjamin Button where we could apply all of those skills that we had learned in a very public way because it's story-driven. It's not something that's meant to be hidden. You know, Benjamin is supposed to be changing age throughout and, and all the other characters, Kate. And that was very exciting for us to be a part of. I can pitch this to Pablo. I know The Irishman is remarkable for the markerless tracking and I'm sure a whole host of other technological advancements. I mean, can we talk a little bit about where we are now versus where we are then and yeah, well, I think that we are in an industry where we stand on each other's shoulders. I've taken a look at the work that Lola did and, uh, you know, all the procedural work that was done on Benjamin Button. I've taken a look at all the work that everybody does on the Marvel films. I myself have done some, you know, like for five years, I worked on, on a couple of shows that were the beginning of the marker procedural capture at ILM. but you know, you kind of follow the natural flow of things, meaning that if, like I said before, if the history is at first, we use the performance as a video reference, we keyframe it, and then we migrate, you know, we put markers in the bodies, and then that, that went into the face, and then procedurally, we ask the computer to take a look at those markers, then the next natural progression there is to get rid of all the markers. We find other ways to create geometry out of whatever the camera is, out of pixels, out of whatever the camera is seeing. And it also is it's a project-driven, because if we, in Irishman, if we didn't have somebody, you know, like Marty Scorsese, so focused on the performance and so protective of, uh, you know, what he was trying to do, we wouldn't have come up with that technique. In fact, we, we talked about, when we first did, we did a test uh, about five years ago, with Robert De Niro, and when we did the test, we shot it with three cameras just because there were RGB cameras, and we were just trying to basically triangulate and come up with a cloud system geometry that would allow us to capture the performance. That's kind of crazy if you really think about it, because it was five years ago, and we really didn't know what we were doing. But because we're pushing that thing, we knew 
with all the R&D department and everybody else that we, we had a way to, we were going to find a way to do it. So evolution has a lot to do with the natural progression, but it also has to do with what everybody in the industry is doing because we look at each other's work and uh, we get ideas. To me, what's most fascinating too is seeing the work that Pablo did on the Irishman and everything. So originally for the curious case to Benjamin Button for digital domain, creating the older version of Brad Pitt. And again, that's also pretty interesting because we were doing all of our work purely all in 3D, where Lola, I believe a lot of the work you guys were doing was a hybrid two, two and a half D. That's right. And so we were doing this, you know, older version of Brad Pitt. And that was so hard, especially at the time. And everything we had to do, even though it was all based on Brad Pitt's performances, right? Brad actually went into a specific sound booth where he was actually recording all the lines and dialogue and motions and things for his performances. All of that had to be hand animated. There were some rudimentary solvers at that stage, but we had a facial rig that we had hand modeled hundreds, if not thousands of shapes for teams of animators watching Brad Pitt's performance and every nuance in there and trying to manually manipulate it to get it to match and carry that same nuance. And now we're at the stage where we can actually film the actors live on set practically and use those performances to drive their faces, which to me is just amazing. I think that there's a, a really interesting parallel path that's happened on, on the 2D side and on the 3D side, because there's the same problem in 2D and in 3D. You need to track points and you need to manipulate things. And, you know, you mentioned stereophotogrammetry, Pablo, and sort of trying to create a mesh that doesn't boil, that you can be viewport independent on. And I think those, the kind of technologies that have driven there have all improved significantly since 2006, 2007, which was when I started doing stereophotogrammetry and, and all that kind of stuff. And I think that what's been fascinating to me is, is seeing those different threads influencing each other to the point where now we're looking at obviously AI and neural networks and machine learning as a, a very powerful tool in this space. And that's giving us minutes of footage from 2D and then also a solution that is certainly a second at a time in 3D, but it's there to improve the character rigs. And as you were saying, Darren, you know, coming up with, with clever shapes and combinations of shapes which are more optimized and don't require such labor-intensive methods. Yeah. Also, I think in the work that everybody is doing, and in particularly in, in Irishman, we started with one way of doing things and then we ended up doing something completely different which is very symptomatic of the other work in visual effects. In other words, we sit down and and we have a challenge and we're trying to figure it out. Not not always do we know exactly where we're going, but we know that we're going to end up in a good place. In our case, I mean, that solution of doing some cloud generation like went away, just like a cloud. (laughs) Like it, it ended up being a real differential kind of render kind of an approach where the computer is doing a lot of thinking. And oddly enough, there was no keyframe animation anymore. It went away and never came back. So it's really interesting how things are going. In a way, it's great to sit down at a table. We're really lucky, all of us, to be able to sit down at a table with a bunch of people and just come up with stuff. It's just great. Yeah, very cool. Fascinating. So I'm going to use this as an opportunity to kind of segue. So I imagine that this requires a lot of trust in you and your colleagues from the directors and the actors and the teams that you work with 
Scorsese is well known for being, or he's rumored to be a very exacting director and has high expectations. And so it's my understanding that a lot of this type of work is based on lots and lots of research, you know, going back and looking at old footage of performances and actors and so on and so forth. So I'm wondering if we can kind of elaborate on what the research process looks like, how is it changing, that kind of stuff. There's a tremendous amount of research involved. There's lots of looking into anatomy and aging changes, primarily on the face. You know, you're, you're looking at the way the skin changes over time and, and the way not only our features change, but our expressions change and how one holds their face changes dramatically from when they're young to when they're old and trying to pinpoint the unique characteristics of the person that are static throughout, you know, age independent while also identifying the age-dependent features on their face, you know, trying to eliminate those, but not eliminating the person underneath. And through it all, as we've mentioned, performance is king. So you're trying to do all of this work without ever affecting their performance, because that's what the real prize is. You want to keep that preserved at all costs, and uh, everything else is subservient to that. Yeah, I agree. We, we spent about two years or so building a library for every one of the three actors, De Niro, Pacino, and, and, and Pesci, kind of like the age that we needed in the movie. And we cataloged all those clips and all those frames in a specific way so that we could look for stuff. But then we also <laughs> charged the computer with finding those things. So in the middle of the project, AI just came in. It's just like, wait a minute, the computer is trying to figure out, trying to you know, see a render that we did and trying to find something equivalent in another movie that was done 30 years ago. And it's giving you a frame and it's doing that for every one of the frames. And it's taking into consideration the lighting, the rotation of the face, some of the expressions, you know, smiling or concern. And so we realized, well, now we have a way for us to check our work. So that came in into the daily process. And also, oddly enough, we, <laughs> we spent a lot of time trying to find frames and clips of the actors where they did not look like themselves. Because I think that's part of a problem that we all have in visual effects. I think everybody else has the same thing. We put an asset, we render an asset, we put it in front of the director or, or anybody at, or in dailies, and we say, well, that doesn't that's look like himself. I mean, our asset, but it looks okay from this angle, but it doesn't look okay from the other angle. And that is a problem that we need to uh, sort out. And, you know, I had a, a hundreds of frames of, in which the actors did not look at, like themselves because when we were in Davis and the director would say, well, you know, what do you think of this? Well, I have this picture. He said, that's, that's your actor, but doesn't look like himself, but that's him. I also found that sometimes I would work with an actor on set and there's a specific angle that the actor does not look like himself. doesn't matter what, you know, like Matt Damon. You've never seen Matt Damon from a profile because he has a very specific nose. Nobody really has seen that angle and he doesn't look like himself. So they never, he never, they never get him from that angle. All of that we take into consideration, yeah? I just want to add to that. I mean, the thing that I don't think everyone actually realizes is that, you know, we do a lot of digital double work. I think we all do. And that's just creating an actor in a certain likeness that they are right now. And that's really hard, right? So we can often create sort of a single frame of the actor, side by side, neutral pose. They look like them. The CG version is indistinguishable from the real version. But as soon as they move, it becomes extremely difficult. We still haven't nailed that all the time. 
And that's making actor look like themselves as they currently are, where we're able to scan them, we're able to use facial capture and all those techniques. Now, as we look at sort of aging or de-aging, where you're actually trying to make a moving version of the actor in a form you can't see or you've got some reference of, but it's none of it's exactly ideal, is just even so much harder on top of it, which is why so much of this work is so amazing that it is so good. I couldn't agree more with that. I think that the motion, the underlying motion is so critical and key to any character. And I think that what's interesting, really a revelation for me and fairly recently is that the the use of the AI, the machine learning technology, which kind of gets rid of the question of did it start off being the, the cast member? Because you can look at any still frame of those deep fakes and you see that it that it is. But somehow when it moves it's not and if you don't cast the actor that you're transposing that onto correctly that the character comes across wrong and it's that exact same problem i was just going to add to what darren was saying with reference you know with with sam jackson for instance and captain marvel and well with any character really we, we get a lot of questions from people saying isn't that great that you have all of that reference you know from all the movies that they've done and i believe it is it's fantastic to have all that information but the audience has all, the, all that information too. So they have something to compare with. So they can point out exactly what you've done wrong when you've done something wrong. So you have to be that much more careful with, with everything you do. I agree. I had a conversation with Robert De Niro one time in which he said, well, you know, this looks great. Uh, he, he was looking at it at the work, but you realize he says that I'm not acting like, you know, I was 30 years ago. And he said, but that's kind of like who I am. I mean, when you think about performance, performances, if you want to recreate somebody's performance in a behavioral likeness kind of way, those choices that that actor makes, they're a result, a product of their life experiences. So as they they get older, they cannot act like they were before. (laughs) So when somebody looks at the work and says, well, that doesn't look like him 30 years ago. Well, but we weren't going for that. We were going for a young version of the character that you are that is telling the story that you're watching. So I think there is a place for having an understanding of that when you are, when you're gathering the data at the beginning and you're building your models and you're doing all that Medusa thing that we call, you know, where we capture all the, the faces and all the different expressions. There is a place for us to show a picture of the actor, the younger actor, and say, here, make this face. As opposed to a version of that face, of, you know, when they're older. And so I think in hindsight, we could have done that and we could have gone closer to the younger actor, but that wasn't part of the project either. So it's a tricky thing, you know, you just have to be really careful. Yeah, that's remarkable. I have found that as soon as somebody knows that there's a visual effect or a CG object, the audience inherently might start to get clever and then question some things, even if there isn't, you know, if you can demonstrate, oh, it's one-to-one, it's all good. But I'm curious about, Darren, you kind of touched on this with, based on your title, I'm assuming that you're doing a lot of work with digital doubles and things like that. I'm wondering if you can just kind of expand the conversation about how age manipulation and beauty work and digital double work, how, what that weird triangle, like where, where are we at with that? So that is a, Big question. In digital domain, we do a huge amount of digital double work, as I imagine everybody else does. A lot of our digital double work has been primarily in the 3D realm. So digital double, we're going to get the actor. We scan the actor in a range of different expressions. We have the real actor in different lighting environments. And we're really trying to recreate this digital version of the actor that matches the actor one-to-one. And 
that in itself is getting much easier than it used to be, but it's still extremely difficult. Now as you look at aging, de-aging, a lot of that kind of work that we've done has been most in generally in the 3D realm. And so when we're creating an older or younger version of the app, we'll try and scan other people that are in the same range as what we're looking for. So if we have a younger actor, we're making an older version of them, we'll scan a whole series of sort of older actors that have similar types of facial features and things like that, just so we can understand how their face moves as they age. And we will use all of that to kind of modify and adjust our younger digital version into this older or younger version of the actor. Now, when we're looking to a more hybrid approach, we're really going to try and use imagery, imagery of the actor, different forms to get closer. And so a lot of these things are coming together, the digital double world, but also sort of the aging, even beautification side of things, some of these newer technologies. Many of them are not ready for prime time either, though, right? They're, they still struggle. They struggle with resolution. They struggle with modifying results. But it is ch- starting to already change the way we're doing things. Anybody else want to chime in on that? I think that also, even though the Irishman was majority of the work was 3D, there was a lot of 2D work and there's a lot of lots of different ways to get the result that we are that we're going through. And it's kind of funny, you know, I've been looking at a bunch of uh, fake videos and things like that on a work even that we do, you know, on top obviously it's on top of the work that we do. So that's different, right? <laughs> but as you look at it. We're not there yet. I mean, I know that it seems like we are, but for maybe we can recreate something for a minute or for a few seconds of something that comes from older footage. But the thing about it is that, you know, when you start with very low resolution imaging, and so we are all trying to kind of like make use of that image because it's, it's out there and we can, you know, we, we can have access to it. And we're all trying, I suspect, I haven't talked to anybody about it, but I suspect that everybody's trying to oppress images and come up with solutions that make use of that footage that is out there that is usable. But if we had high-resolution images from all that footage, yeah, we can come up with a solution that, that is a procedural you know, computer learning, aiding the work that we do. But let's not jump to the conclusion that now... We can all do that with great results. I, mean, I think that there's some misinformation about why didn't they do this? And why we think about it a lot. <laughs> there's, a, there's usually a reason why we ended up in a specific way. And there's usually a reason, more than one reason, why things don't actually end up well, you know, one way or the other. Sometimes it's editorial choices, lighting choices, performance choices. You run out of money, you run out of time. All kinds of things. It's not just because we don't want to come up with a good result. Yeah, I'm sure there's a, people like to imagine it's easier than it is. It's also much easier when you're making a very tiny YouTube clip and you only have to worry about uh, 200 pixels and it looks blurry and awesome and it's not up on the screen in 4K and scrutinized to the same level. <laughs> I'm so glad you addressed that. One of the comments that one of you guys made in there during the conversation related to story, and I'm, I'm curious about how the impact of these technologies and these techniques, is it changing the type of stories that you're receiving? Is it changing the type of work that you're receiving? Like, how, how is the type of work being ingested at the studio being impacted by these breakthroughs and techniques and so forth? I'd imagine it's definitely 
something that directors are contemplating now. It's a new tool in their tool bag that they never had before. You know, in the past, if they wanted to do a drastic age jump in a movie or something like that, they would have to recast. There was just no other choice. To some extent, you can do it with makeup, especially if you're going up in age, but going down in age is nearly impossible with makeup. So it's something that has added to their bag of tricks that they can use to tell their story. They can have the audience follow one character played by the same performer all the way through the film without ever having to challenge their suspension of disbelief by changing actors or, or altering the performance. You know, they can grow with that character through the whole film. And that's, that's something that I think is being used more and more based on our successes of, of using that tool. You know, they're getting more and more comfortable with, with using it and more and more ideas are, are springing forth from it. Yeah, and just because, you know, you can, that doesn't mean that you should, right? Like everybody says, I think that we are all victims of that in the visual effects that we do. I mean, we are always questioned. We actually don't have much to say about that. <laughs> we just work on the project. But that's one of the things that I, you know, that I would ask directors too, and, and producers and writers, you know, why are you doing this? It does not make any sense. I was just reading an article just yesterday about generative networking and how, we can come up with people that are, don't really exist. And I could see the movie, just imagine a movie being made with people that don't exist. It's funny you should mention that, Pablo. I was, I was talking to some, some guys at Framestore in the commercial side of the business, which is not one I have much to do with, but they put out there a, a thing for casting agencies for commercials where if a, a casting director says, I want you to find somebody who's a mix of Brad Pitt and so-and-so, they lend their faces and come up with an image and then that's like a goal for your casting director and uh, so it's a that's a crazy idea yeah <laughs> that's actually a realm of work that's happening too and something we're also pretty involved in as well i, I do think the interesting thing and, and we've talked to different actors about it and different actors unions and groups about it is that even though we are creating these virtual entities these people that don't exist that are generated faces or completely artificial we always have a performance behind there, at least at this stage, right? And at least for the next 15 to 20 years. And so it's just a form of acting, right? So you think, I don't really go to watch a movie because of the actor's appearance. I'm going there for the performance. And so even these tools and techniques and creating these artificial humans, as long as we're having a person drive them, that there is the actor. The actor is just driving a different face, a different person, in the same way you would drive a Thanos or a Hulk or uh, any of these other characters, which is just different human, and still then about the performance, and shouldn't really be that scary because it's still trying to sort of stay true to what the actor's doing, just in this different representation of them. Yeah, there's always a question that we always get. I'm sure you, you guys have gotten it too. It's like, when is it going to be the time when the computer is going to create a performance? Well, tell you what, like I said, the um, performance is a result of you know a bunch of experiences that we all go through. And if you want to create a computer-generated Robert De Niro to act like a Robert De Niro, you have to program the computer with all the experiences that this actor had for 75 years. Do you really want to do that? For that, you just go to Robert De Niro, you know? We can't create a digital human that's acting independently that you could talk to for more than one to two seconds and wouldn't immediately tell that it's fake, never mind an actor crafting a performance. And so, you know, recently we've had several different news agencies talking to us about this exact title, which is 
when the actors are going to be replaced. And they all left pretty disappointed because we don't think they are going to be replaced. It's all about the performance. We've just developed this new tool for their performances. And yeah. Yeah. For every actor that is listening, no, you, you will never be replaced. It, just, it makes no sense. <laughs> That reminds me of something you touched on earlier with the comment about uh, artificial intelligence or machine learning or whatever. Some people see that as it's going to be the downfall of our work or how our work manifests, but it just seems like it's more time for us to spend making cool pictures instead of you know the tedious stuff. Beauty work in visual effects is pretty well established and pretty frequent, I think, whether people discuss it or not. And age manipulation and digital doubles are sort of becoming more frequently discussed in in news agencies and things like that, as you just mentioned. To take a step back from the technology, do any of you want to elaborate on how you feel about like the ethics of these practices? Well, yeah. I just don't think creating something just because you can is is the right angle here. A couple of times I was I was in a meeting and the director said something like, well, you need to save me some money here. You need to say, you need to come up with uh, some cost things. It's like the script was really not, not a good script. And then I said, you know, if you want to save some money, you know, don't make this. So meaning we can impart some knowledge and, and direction as to why we're doing what we're doing. But I have to say that generally the projects that I work on completely justify it all goes back to the performance that we were talking about, right? Because when somebody says, you know, we're going to put an actor there that has been not around for a long time, it's been gone, but we talked about casting and this is the right casting for that movie. And then you, you put him in there digitally. And actually, when you talk about casting, you're talking about the choices that that actor made when he was alive or she was alive. If that person is not there, where is the performance coming from? So it has to come from an imposter or somebody else. So the performance really is not really there. And so the reasons why you're doing that, they're not justified. <laughs> See? But again, you know, we all have a mortgage, so we do away <laughs> the more tolls. <laughs> certainly do. I think for me, there's a question around how beauty presented and idealized in society. And, and I think that that is a slightly different thing to this, which I think in movies we're creating an illusion. You're always creating an illusion. And those cast members, they're such experts at it. We're just, I feel like we're aiding them in that creation. I think that how that bleeds outside of the world of the cinema or the world of the TV at home and, and into online media and all that other stuff, is a, that's a slightly more nuanced thing for me that I don't necessarily feel entirely comfortable with. But I think that within the... The confines of cinema, as I see it, there's a, a strong argument that that should be a fantasy and it should be this thing that we're doing. So I, I feel fairly fairly comfortable in my skin on that one. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing I'll say, we've been having a lot of talks with different guilds and actors' guilds and different organizations and even lawyers in this realm. I think one thing that really does need to happen is the people's image rights needs to really be locked down, especially actors' image rights. And sort of, I think this will help things once there's a more clear definition of what a studio can and can't do with those images, having the actor be able to retain certain rights, whether the studio can use it for a different show and what that actually looks like. And I think once those are sort of negotiated and locked down, and I think especially with all of the deep fake type work out there at the moment, that's going to sort of accelerate locking that down. People feel a lot more, especially actors will feel a lot more comfortable knowing what can and can't be done with it. 
And I think we've all been pretty good about treating the imagery with respect and being very careful about it and trying to involve the actors and being sensitive to that. But I think that does need to be legally locked down at some point. Yeah, I agree. There, there's a lot of delicate things when it comes to an actor's image, you know, that have to be dealt with in a legal scenario. Just one thing to think about is if an actor owns their image, if that's an asset that they own, can they sell it? Can they license their image to to a company? And if it's that tradable, can it be forcibly taken? If they go bankrupt, can the bank repossess their image? Can we have movies with an actor presented to you by, you know, T-Mobile, you know, <laughs> or whatever company it is? It's a very uh, confusing idea to think about. And, and it's something that the lawyers and politicians have to, to iron out, I think, before we get in too deep. And to that point, actually, so part of that exact thing you're talking about, I was fascinated hearing about this, that if you went bankrupt, you could lose ownership of your likeness. And it potentially could be illegal to take a picture of yourself because somebody else owns your image. That won't ever be allowed, but all of those things kind of have to be sorted out. And it all ties back to the same realm of what is an actor's image and who owns it and what can be done with it. Yeah, and there's a question too as to when we change something or when we change an actor into a younger himself or or something like that, is it the same performance? Because I remember one, uh, one of the clauses in the project that I was working on, the, the actor said, you are not allowed to change my performance. So it's a tricky thing. It's a technology thing that is taking over our world here in a kind of a very ironic way, which, you know, right now we are not allowed to be with each other. We're social distancing us, but technology is the only thing that keeps us together. <laughs> this is a very ironic thing that, that I find. It's no doubt this is going to change and it's changing right now. And I do see the AI and the deep fake and all these images that are around being used in some form, you know, in the future. Thank you so much for joining in on this discussion. It was a real pleasure having you. I can't wait to hear some more of your uh, stories in the future. And I'd like to end it with each of you, if I can, because this is the SIGGRAPH Spotlight podcast. If anybody wants to share any uh, fond SIGGRAPH memories, for example, I remember the first time I went, I think my brain nearly like split in half. I was so floored by what there was to see and do there. So just in, you know, any SIGGRAPH memories, thoughts, final closing diatribes, manifestos? I spoke on a panel for The Age of Ultron uh, when that film came out. And specifically, we were discussing the three digital characters, the three primary digital characters in the film, which, which were Hulk, Ultron, and Vision. And I was there to discuss Vision because he was created with Lola. I just remember you know, seeing the, the size of that room because it was the, the keynote room. I, I don't actually know the name of the room, but there there were thousands of people. <laughs> and uh, I had never spoken to an audience that large before. I had done uh, talks for classrooms and, and students and things like that. And never a couple thousand of my compatriots, you know, like people that are doing the same things that I'm doing and, and facing the same challenges. And so it was a very exciting thing to be a part of and scary at the same time. Yeah, well, we, we were glad to have you. Chris, I know you need to get going. So do you have a, a final thought you want to share? Well, I've, I've enjoyed SIGGRAPH enormously, both as a punter and a presenter. And I think 
I, I'm not sure this would stand up to a fact check, but I'm going to go for it anyway. I, I think when we were presenting for Gravity that I was super nervous for all the reasons that Trent was just talking about, even though we'd just been through this whole thing. And we got out there and I think Vic, the, Victoria Alonso was on before me and she was like singing to the audience or something like that. And, and I was so nervous and I was like, oh my God, well, if Victoria's there and she's singing to everybody, then it's like, what can I do wrong? <laughs> so that was maybe okay. Yeah, that, that's definitely, I, just to touch on that point, I think that the value, like knowing that that audience cares as much as they do and that they're sort of so invested and so deeply understanding. The, the, amount, the amount my brain has grown by sitting at SIGGRAPH talks and listening to super smart people, smarter than myself, inform me of things. And so to have the honor to speak back to that group is just amazing. I'll miss it this year. Yeah, I think that that's one of the things that I take from SIGGRAPHs. It's the fact that we actually, we're really busy in our own you know, jobs. and We barely talk to each other. And it's very, very rare that we all get together and actually have a chance to check with one another. And it'll be, you know, it'll be interesting what happens from now on, you know, that we, even though we're going to have what we have and we're going to learn all kinds of things, the time that we're down, that we're just socially interacting with each other, just ain't going to be there. Yeah. And Darren, do you want to round us out? Sure, yeah. SIGGRAPH has a special place in my heart. I, my first SIGGRAPH was about 20 years ago, and I remember being in a RenderMan user group, and I magically won the raffle that year, and I got to go up to the front, and they told me to say a few words about myself. And it was awesome, because I was actually looking for a job at the time, so I told all the thousand people in this big hall that I was at. I was new and I was looking for work. So come meet me out in the front if you have any opportunities. And I very quickly after that got a job. And uh, I think I've been to almost every SIGGRAPH since then. So And every single user, random man user group since then too. That's amazing. Yeah, I love that. Thank you. And so, you know, this year being virtual is going to be a little bit strange and I'm definitely going to miss the face-to-face interaction, which is one of the best parts of the conference. But this year, I'll actually get to see all of the sessions that I want to see because they're going to be available. So that's, that's the silver lining. So thanks very much, guys. Really appreciate it. All right. Thank you very much for having us. Pleasure meeting everybody. Oh, the magic of cinema. For more information on the people and projects featured today or the upcoming virtual SIGGRAPH 2020 conference, which will include production sessions on The Irishman, Frozen 2, CG in advertising, The Mandalorian, and more. Check out the links in our show notes. See you next time.